Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Oh, this is going to be fun. Glad to see the Starbucks has kicked in. So, welcome to the Church of Rocky Peak. If you're here for the first time, special welcome to you. Like Dave so beautifully said, you know the awesome and the hard thing about those introductions, and I have to live up to it, so we'll see how this goes. Um... Like Dave said, my name is Dre. I have the privilege to currently serve as the high school pastor here. I've been in student ministries for the last decades. I love teenagers, many of you. I love your specific students, but it is nice to branch out and get to talk to some slightly taller people every now and then. So thank you for indulging me. I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm excited to continue uh, this series. But for those of you that we haven't had the opportunity to meet before, I thought I would try to give you a little insight into who I am by bragging and showing you uh, who my family is, the people that really make me who I am. So a picture is going to come up on the screens of my lovely family. That's, that is uh, my incredible wife, Megan, and our five-month son, year old, five-month year old, our five-month son, Gabriel. We make good-looking babies, huh? So I'm very, very grateful for them and uh, just the roles they play in my life. So you got a program on your way in. Inside your program, there is a message note sheet. What that is is simply a tool. If it, it can help you follow along with the message. If you'd like to jot down some notes you'd like to remember later, or if you want to play some hangman, that's your prerogative, but that's there for you. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into our text today. Father... Gosh, I love that I get to call you that. Father, we are here gathered as family this morning. We are your sons and we are your daughters. Jesus, all weekend I've been reflecting on the words of John the Baptist where he said that you, Jesus, must become greater and that I must become less. Jesus, as your family is gathered in this place, as your family is gathered in many other local churches in our world, we are all gathered for the same reason. We want to make you famous. We want to make you famous in how you transform our lives, in our obedience, in our speech, in our actions, the way we lead our communities, the way we lead our families, Lord. Whatever it takes for us generally, corporately, and whatever it takes for us specifically, as an individual son or daughter, continue to imprint onto our souls how we can continually say, Jesus, you are greater. Transform us here this morning. In your son's name, amen. amen. So, I think it would be a safe assumption to say that just about everybody in this room has at one time or another made a bad decision has at one time or another made a decision that you knew was bad, that you knew was stupid, that you knew was wrong, but you still did it anyways because of the influence of somebody else. I, think about, I was thinking back about this on my life, and I can come up with a myriad of situations, but one specifically that, ju that jumped to mind was a couple years ago. See, I had a really, really great friend that, had, that was coming to the church, and he had just purchased himself a dirt bike, like a really, really nice dirt bike. Now, we were fans of the sport. I love watching Supercross. I love watching things like freestyle motocross where they're jumping and flipping the bikes. I love watching is the key word, but I have never had any, any interest on 
on getting on a bike and riding myself. And the reason I've never had any interest is because I have pretty good self-awareness. And what I mean by that is I understand that God has wired me certain ways and dealing with motor vehicles in any way, shape, or form is not how he's done that. I have enough trouble riding a normal bicycle, let alone getting on a motorbike of any kind. So we're talking about that. He's talking about his bike. He's talking about how he, it's just, he just was a natural. It was coming really quickly and easily to him. And I'm getting really, really excited. Then he looks at me and goes, hey, Dre, if you want, I can teach you how to ride my bike. And the minute those words left his mouth, I knew this was a bad, bad idea. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know, kind of like shy and sheeply. He's like, no, 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 come on. It's going to be fine. You're going to be great. You're going to do this. And I'm like, okay. And I smile and not okay. And everything, alarms are going off my head. It's like, don't do this. But I agreed to it. And I look back now and I wonder, well, why did I agree to it? And you know what the raw, honest truth is? I didn't want him to think any less of me. And here's, here's the biggest rub in that situation. He was a great guy. He wouldn't have thought any less of me. But for whatever reason, I still had that assumption. So he takes me out. We, we set up a date. We get together and we're going to go ride. So he's trying to teach me how to ride a dirt bike. And our first genius move is we decide to do it in a cement parking lot. So <laughs> it gets better. So... We get into the cement parking lot. Now, this bike is huge. Again, I don't know the terminology. I don't know how to describe them. All I know is I'm a little dude, and this bike was bigger than me. And so I get on the bike, and he's explaining to me, like, how to shift and how the gears work. And it's like he's talking another language, but I don't want to seem stupid. So I'm just kind of nodding, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He's going with it. And I remember, I, I remember, and this is the memory that haunts me. I'm sitting there. He's trying to teach me. And I look over my shoulder, and I go, hey, don't you think I should be wearing a helmet? And he thinks about it, and his honest to God answer is, no, because you're not going to actually get it to go. You're just going to stall it. So I'm going, okay. So apparently I'm a savant at these things because he told me what to do, and I did it, and somehow I got this thing going. Somehow I got this bike going. Now, you know those moments in life where time slows down, you know those moments in life where you're like in the matrix and that bullet time slowing down? I'm in one of those moments, but, I can, but when I say I'm in one of those moments, as far as I can remember, because my memory gets fuzzy in a little bit. So I remember the bike is going. It's going quick. I'm doing one of those like Superman moves unintentionally over it, and everything slows down, and the first thought in my head is just sheer terror, and then this calming sentence going, okay, so this is how I'm going to die. And then afterwards... <laughs> I don't really remember what happened. I do know, as it's been described to me, it ended with a crash. Because when I come to, all I know is I'm on the ground and this bike is pinned on top of me. I'm looking around. Now, the good thing is I'm in a lot of pain. That shows that I'm alive. So I'm sitting there, and as my friends come running up to me, and they were great, great friends, as soon as they saw that I wasn't leaking brain, they started laughing, and they were pulling me out from under the bike. And the awesome thing is I had to go explain to my then-girlfriend, now wife, why I was picking asphalt out of my hands and legs for the next week. But I can clearly stand up in front of you now and go, that was a stupid decision. But when I look back, it kind of points out an interesting realization to me, in fact, an astounding realization to me, is it not astounding the amount of influence other people have in our lives? 
Is it not astounding the amount of influence that can even change us to do things which we are convinced we don't want to do? Now, don't get me wrong. In our lives, we have some amazing, God-given, great, positive influences through people in our lives, and they are amazing gifts. But the reality of it is we also have people in our lives that can influence us negatively and so much so that can lead us to pain. It can lead us to destruction. It can just flat out hurt and it can mark our lives for a long period to come. See, as I shared that story about my bike incident, I know for some of you, you can think back to a similar incident where you smile and go, hey, I was a dumb kid or that was a mistake or that was a great story we can tell. But there's also many of you in this room, and myself included, that you look back at other incidences where people influenced you, where they had a negative influence, and the result and the memory isn't so cheerful. The result and the memory is painful. The result and the memory led to hurt and led to destruction. See, you remember when we were kids going through elementary school and we'd go through teachings and seminars about the dangers of peer pressure, about the dangers of people negatively, negatively influencing us, impacting us to force us to do things we knew were wrong and didn't want to do. And here's what's interesting to me in our adult lives is we talk about those truths of how peer pressure can negatively affect you as a kid. And yet when we, quote, grow up, we stop talking about it. But it doesn't go away. See, so many of us in this room have experienced the fact that certain people influencing us negative has had destructive results on our relationships, on our marriages, on our kids, on our purity, on our value, on our worth, on our image, on our success, on career choice. And certain influences, certain negative influences can exert so much influence in our lives that it can also determine and change the object of our worship. And that's actually the issue we're going to address today in our text. See, in our text today, the Apostle Paul is addressing a serious problem in the church at Corinth. And it's a problem that exists in the church today because we are a fallen race. The problem that Paul is going to be addressing in this text is the fact that within the church, the followers in the church were starting to get influenced by the people outside the church so much so that they were choosing to worship things outside of God. They were being influenced so much so that the outside influence was a louder voice than the influence of Jesus himself. And Paul addresses this, and what he does through this address is he refocuses, he goes, okay, we need to reboot, we need to refocus, and we need to put our worship where it belongs, and that is at the throne of Jesus. So if you are here for the first time, again, we are glad that you're spending this morning with us. Let me bring you up to speed. We are in a series that we've been in since about April called The Power to Change. What we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a good deep look at the letter of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of, the, one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus. And he's writing this letter to a church he started in the city of Corinth on the southern tip of Greece. Now, what had happened, what had happened in the between is Paul had helped start this church, and then he had left, and in his absence, some false teachers, some new teachers came in. And I like to use the word, they hijacked the church at Corinth. And what they, came, they did is they came in and they declared themselves the true messengers of the true message. They discredited and attacked Paul and going, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy's message is completely wrong. They came into this church and hijacked it with a new gospel, a false gospel, which led to a different Jesus. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to the church to mentor this church to get things on back on track to defend himself and understand Paul is not defending himself because of an ego thing. Paul is defending himself because he understands what's at stake. See, if they accept this false Jesus, if they accept this false gospel, then what's at stake is the very health and existence of this church. And here's something I love about the Apostle Paul is with this hardship, with these trials, Man, he fights for God's people. He fights for God's message. And he doesn't want anything to be a barrier in the way of the true love and grace of Jesus Christ. So two weeks ago, Pastor Mike was addressing some of these specific issues where Paul was clarifying what the actual message is, the true gospel, not this false gospel. The true message of Jesus is the fact that through Jesus' death and resurrection, through the cross and the empty grave, God has made a way to reconcile us, a fallen race, back to him in relationship. Through Jesus, God has brought us back, has forgiven us through Jesus of our sin and rebellion, and has restored us, transformed us, and will grow us on this side of heaven and the next. Pastor Mike calls it the great exchange that happens on the cross. A week ago, Paul was addressing the fact that now that he's restored the true gospel, he's going to restore himself as the true messenger of the gospel. And if you remember last week, Pastor Mike taught about the importance of having Christ-like models in our lives, people that imitate Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And these are the people we should be basically be modeling after that their passionate pursuit is Jesus himself. And today, we're going to see, as Paul kind of ends almost this mini-series of three points, here's the true message. Here's the true messenger. Now, as that messenger and as the church of Jesus, I have got a message for you that's going to take us back to the gospel. So if you've got your Bibles, open it up to 2 Corinthians. If you've got your apps, turn them on. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read the entire section of our scripture tonight through once through, just so you get the sense of flow and contextual, it'll make sense, and I'm going to go back and dissect it afterwards. So let's read together. Verse 14, do not be yoked with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there by Christ and Belial or, Bel- or Belial? That's another name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Verse 17, therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 
So there's a lot of great, great stuff that's going on in this passage. So let me start digging into this just a little bit here. So at the very beginning of verse 14, we have the command. Paul is addressing the issue that we're going to unpack in a little bit. The command is do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now, yoked is a word that we tend not to use too often anymore in our current culture. But a simple definition of yoke is being bound together in a significant way. Now, in this specific context, well, context, what Paul is doing is he's addressing two opposites, two complete opposites being bound together in a significant way. Now, he uses that word because he's quoting the Old Testament. In the Mosaic laws in Deuteronomy, there was a Mosaic prohibition against yoking two different kinds of animals when it came to plowing. The specific example in Deuteronomy is an ox and a donkey. And the reason why that was prohibited is because they were too different to accomplish the goal, to go in the right direction. It wasn't going to work. And that's the issue that Paul is addressing here. Now, before I unpack this let me, a little further, let me be very, very clear about something. Let me be very clear about what Paul is not saying through that command. Paul is not saying that we as Christ followers should completely sever all ties with the unbelieving world. Paul is not saying that we as Christ followers should retreat from unbelievers, should live in our Christian compounds and build very, very high walls and pray for their salvation but never interact and show them Jesus. And because we see that over and over in Paul's writings, he talks about live such great lives among them, be a light among them. And the fact of the matter is he's not saying that because he knows that Jesus died on the cross for you and me, but he also died on the cross for everybody that's outside these walls. And he's reminded that's not what he's saying, but here's what he is saying. What he is saying that when it comes to the relationships between believers and non-believers, Christ followers and the unbelievers, there need to be boundaries in those relationships when it comes to the area of influence. See, here was the problem that Paul was addressing that was happening in Corinth. See, the Corinthians had given their lives to Jesus and there was life change, but through whatever type of factors, there was a, some reverting that was going on. They were living in a pagan society. There were these false teachers that were going on. I'm sure some of them were facing personal hardships and trials, but for whatever reason, there were Christ followers in this church that they had influences outside of this church that were influencing them away from Jesus, and they were reverting back to who they were before Jesus came into the picture. Specifically in Corinth, what that meant is these influence, the yoking of these influences were leading many of these people in the church to go back to their pagan idols and their cults, and they were worshiping there. A modern day example of what this can look like to be yoked, to be influenced more by other people than by God is in the area of sexual purity. See, there's many of us that we come to Christ there's many of us that we are changed by Jesus and we see his plan for sexual purity. See, our culture has hijacked sexuality. And what we see in scripture is that God is not this God that we see culturally that hates sex and doesn't want to talk about it. God is the creator of it. His desire for his followers is to have the best sex life possible. And to do that as the creator, he set that within a specific parameter for success. And that's the balance of marriage between a husband and a wife. 
God is not anti-sex, he's anti-hurt. And there's so many of us that were within the church, we believe that, we acknowledge it, and our goal is to be pure. But there's so many of us at the same time that we get into relationships perhaps with people that don't share that value, that don't share that view of sexuality. And maybe at first we set kind of that line, hey, I'm gonna wait, I wanna be pure. But little by little, these influences start chipping away at us, and our beliefs necessarily don't change. But what happens is we can compromise. We can give in to things like sex before marriage, or other acts, and what happens at that point is we look back and go, what happened? What happened? My beliefs didn't change, but in those moments, and that's one example of many that we could come up with for whatever reason, the lives of these influences, excuse me, the voices of these influences was louder in our heads than the voice of God. This is a very real draw, and that's an example what Paul is talking about when it comes to being yoked. Now, what Paul is doing is he's reminding us of who we are because of Jesus to kind of, to kind of show that Paul is not wagging a finger in our face, but he's saying, do you understand? Before Jesus, we were slaves to sin, but because of Jesus, we're free. So he starts doing, he says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. And what he goes in at the end of verse 14 and into 15, he starts doing five comparisons of who we were and now who we are and forever will be because of Jesus. It's there on your note sheets. I like to call it the BC and the AD of the Christian life. Now, I use those letters. These are common letters because we've seen them. They most commonly denote time, very simply, do they not? B.C. is before Christ. The A.D. is the Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord, which is a very fancy way of just saying Christ is here. And I love the simplicity of that, de of that denotation of time. Here's everything that happened before Jesus, and here's everything that's happened now that Jesus has come and changed everything. And if you are a Christ follower in this room, those letters apply to you. You have a BC portion of your life, and you now live in the AD portion of your life, and you live in this in the present and in the eternal future. And so if you look at it, I'm not going to spend too much time on that table, but in that table, we've listed the first four comparisons. The reason it's in there is because I'm a visual learner, and I just quickly like glancing at something. Let me just read those off real, real quick. Paul starts to say, because of Jesus, not because of me, not because of my might, but because of who Jesus is and his love for me, because of Jesus, we now live in righteousness, not wickedness. Because of Jesus, we now live in his light, not the darkness of sin. Because of Jesus, we are now his, the Christ, the King, the Messiah. He is our King. We are not longer under the dominion of the devil. Because of Jesus, we are believers in the truth. Like Pastor Dave Cox was saying, not in this blind faith, but in the truth that gives us everything we need in life. And we're not unbelievers. And then he goes on and he says the last one, the fifth one, and that one, in fact, it's so powerful that we separate it from the table. And it's right there on your note sheets. It's the new reality. So you can fill that in. Because of Jesus, we are the temple of the living God. So that blank right there is the new reality. I am the temple where God dwells as a Christ follower. See, the temple is Old Testament language, and it wasn't so much referring to the building as it was to the Holy of Holies, where God himself dwelled. And what Paul is saying, because of Jesus, when we give our lives to Jesus in the act of repentance and submission and say, we are yours, the Holy Spirit comes into us, the Holy Spirit guides us, it counsels us, we have God in us, and God dwells among us. 
We are his temple. And he characterizes what were we in the past? Well, whatever we were, whatever we were defined was defined by idols. An idol is a false counterfeit God. An idol is worthless, but that's what defined us. Now I'm going to unpack that a little bit more later, but understand something. If I could steal a word from Pastor Mike, let me do a sidebar right here. What Paul just said by, by, calling, by calling us the temple of God is he defined the church. He defined what it means to be church. I've been guilty of this in my life that we get so hung up on this, on this myth that church is a location and a building. We go to church is common terminology. We go to church and then when we leave, we leave church. But that's not it. See, if the church at Rocky Peak burned down, the church at Rocky Peak would not cease to exist because the church is us. See, when you get up and leave this room and you go to brunch or wherever your day takes you, you are church. You are taking church with you. Now, I wish I had another hour to dig more into that, but homework. So, so go for it. Now, what he does in that end of verse 16, if you notice, he quotes Leviticus 26, where he says, I will, this is the promise that God makes to his people. When you leave your past of idolatry, when you leave your past of sin and you give your life to me, God's promise is I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And what I love is as Paul is using this, as Paul teaches, this, turn, this promise turns into the present tense. As Christ followers, God does live with us. As Christ followers, God does walk among us. He is our God and we are his people. I love that promise. And if you look there at verse 17 and 18, what Paul does is he just strings together some Old Testament quotations and all they simply are doing is they're painting that journey of B.C. to A.D., of leaving the life of sin and rebellion. And I love the family language that he uses. When you leave that life, you are now defined by the fact that the king, the God Almighty, is your father. And then if you look at verse seven, excuse me, verse one of chapter seven, Paul is just restating the command he made at the beginning. Purify yourselves, perfecting holiness. And I know sometimes when we see the word perfect or perfecting in, uh, in biblical text, we get kind of nervous and understand something. In the original language, we are not being called to be perfect. That's not possible on this side of heaven. Jesus is the only perfect one. But here's what that does translate to. What Paul is saying by perfecting holiness is he's calling us to be mature. He's calling us to maturity. He's basically saying, get up and do something about it. And this is a challenge for my life. The fact of the matter is just because I will not be perfect on this side of heaven does not mean that I shouldn't be striving for maturity. I need to remember my place as God's child because when I let people influence me and revert me back to a past of idolatry, what I am doing is practically denying Christ's paternity of me. And Paul is saying, no, 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 do you understand? You are family. Do not live in darkness as an orphan, but live in the light as a family. Now, the core issue that Paul is addressing to the church is idolatry. See, it starts off with that command towards relations and influences, but specifically, what are these relationships and influences doing in our lives? They are causing us to revert back to idolatry, and that's the core issue that Paul is doing because it's influencing the church. These people are exhorting us to worship false gods, and Paul is bringing us back to worship the one true God. 
See, what I love about what Paul is doing as he exhorts his church is he understands that they're sinning. He understands that they're not being perfect. He understands that they're making mistakes and reverting back, but he hasn't given up on the people of God because God didn't give up on them. And he's going, this sin isn't the end of your story, but you need to pick yourself up. You need to dust yourself off. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to go forward because you're not that kid anymore. You are a child of God. And we need to walk towards the light. We need to go forward to continually seek transformation. And we need to deal with us in the church today, us being the individual temple, us corporately being the church with this issue of idolatry and the fact that people in our lives can cause us to go back. Now, I know as I say that, there could be some people that think, well, Dre, I don't bow to a statue of any kind. So I don't deal with idolatry. So I don't know if I necessarily connect with what the point that you guys are trying to make. Now, I understand that. And to be honest, I don't think culturally we have a really, really good understanding of how idolatry works or what it is. I think that the understanding we tend to have is very, very limited. So to understand the command that Paul is doing to let the Spirit guard us from influences of others other than God, we need to really unpack what idolatry is. So there on your note sheet, there's a section called idolatry. We've all dealt with it. So as you're turning there, let me ask you a rhetorical question. What comes to mind when you think of idolatry? What images come to mind when you think of idolatry? How would you define idolatry? Now, for a lot of us, or excuse me, for some of us, some of us that are like pop culture savvy, what, probably the most common usage of that specific word is in the television show American Idol as we go into it, and some of us think of that. But the majority of us, I would venture to guess, when we think of idolatry, we think of statues. We think of people bowing before a golden calf. We think of the legion of like the Greek gods and the temples that were built to them. We think of those times we've seen those golden Buddhas or things sitting on dashboards or sitting in stores or wherever that, we think of statues. And the reality of is, for some of us, that's where the definition ends. Well, I'm not bowing to any type of bronze or golden image, so I don't struggle with idolatry. But the reality is when the biblical definitions of idolatry come to light, idolatry is a heart issue. Those statues, those images of people bowing down to these statues, that is idolatry. But that also paints a picture because what's, what's happening internally for so many of us that we may not even realize it is just that. What they are doing outwardly to these statues is what so many of us are doing internally, and that is bowing down to a God other than Jesus. So to understand this, I've got two definitions there that go hand in hand. So the first one is this. The first way to define idolatry is considering anything more important than God. Now, that may sound like a simplistic definition, but as we unpack this, you're going to see that this has actually some very, very deep ramifications See, Jesus is our Father, and Jesus is our King. So understand something. We live in a weird, hyper-busy culture that, especially as Christ followers, there's a temptation that we want to be about Jesus, we want to put Jesus in our daily schedules, but he becomes just that, a point in our schedules or a point in our agendas, and we try to fit him in. But the reality of it is what it means that Jesus is our king, what it means that he is the most important, 
important thing in our lives is not that he is a part of our schedules or agenda. He is the agenda. He is the whole new agenda that changed anything. So understanding that definition, if we put anything else in the spot of being most important, then we are saying then that thing is the agenda that dictates my life. See, we must never forget that we are created beings. We are created by the God Almighty, and we were created for a relationship with Him. We were created to find fulfillment, to find joy, to find purpose, value, worth in Jesus. Ultimately, we were created to find salvation and identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. When we make anything more important than Jesus, then what's happening is we are seeking our salvation We're seeking our value and our worth, and we are seeking our very identity in something that will never, ever be able to reciprocate the God-sized expectations that we have put on it because there is only one God. And that is what it means to put something more important than Jesus. On your note sheet, there's a note by a pastor named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan. He wrote a fabulous book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods that I highly recommend. And the quote says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. When we put something more important than Jesus, then what we're saying is, even though I don't go to a specific temple of it, I find my value, who I am, is defined by things like my success, my career, my title, my monetary value. I may not be going to a temple, but when I put something more important than Jesus, what we're saying is who I am and my value and my identity is defined by these certain relationships, this dating relationship. I am this person's husband or this person's wife. This person is, I need to seek fulfillment in them, sometimes friendships. And we live in fear that, man, if I ever lost these people in my life, life would just end. When we put things more important than Jesus, we start putting, we start finding our identity and worth in things like sex, which we have already talked about, in things like substances. I need this to get through the day. This is the only way I'm going to function. In things like our roles, even within our families, I'm a parent, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm this, and if I wasn't this, I don't know what I would be. I don't know what would happen, and we can go on and on. Sometimes we define our God more important than Jesus is our pride. It's us. There's nothing higher than me on the food chain. Whatever that is, we could list it out for whatever it is for you individually, whatever it is for me individually. That's what it means to put something more important than Jesus is I am seeking you to define me. And the best way to describe this relationship is the word worship. And that leads us to our second definition on your note sheet. Idolatry is worshiping the created, not the creator. When we worship in our lives, we are acknowledging lordship. When we worship in our lives, we are acknowledging lordship. You run the show. That's what we're doing when we worship. And every last one of us, Christian, non-Christian, whatever the situation is, we all worship something. And the reason I know that is because we are, remember I said we are created beings? Well, we were created to worship. We were created to worship God. We are naturally good worshipers. We're actually really, really good at this, and it comes easy. If you want proof that we're naturally good worshipers, you don't have to look much further than a sporting event. Yesterday was the Kings game, and unfortunately they lost. But you see that one of my favorite examples of this is I have an awesome brother-in-law 
um, who's from Wisconsin, who's from Green Bay. And my understanding, because I've grown up in Southern California, that's where Cold was born. And my sister used to live there with him. And she would show me these pictures of them at Lambeau Field and like sub-zero freeze. To me, sub-zero is like anything under 70, but this is like real sub-zero temperatures. And they're there all bundled up. But what's fascinating to me is not just the fact that people are going in those temperatures, but even in those Arctic conditions, there are guys, and it's always just guys, but there are guys that are there shirtless, shorts, painted green with the cheese heads, just rooting their team on. And I sit there and I go, that is dumb. But that's also, and why are they doing it? It's an expression of worship. They're saying, you are the greatest thing ever. We're naturally good at worship, and to be honest, we tend to worship some stupid things when we're not worshiping God. But the reality of worship is when we acknowledge lordship to something or someone, remember those fundamental desires I listed earlier, especially salvation? We are looking for that in the object of our worship. See, when sin came into this world because of us, when we rebelled against God, it distorted the focus of our worship. We were created to worship the one true God, and sin turned our head. And what happens, we start becoming, like that Pastor Tim Keller said, these idle factories where we started assigning godhood to so many created things and stopped worshiping the creator. See, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike Yearly said that we have a natural propensity to rebel against God because we're a fallen race, and we do so by declaring things other than Jesus, God, in our lives. And the, I mentioned this once before, and the influence of people, these unbelievers that Paul is addressing in this letter, they are exhorting us to worship false gods. And Paul is addressing this to bring us back that there's only one God. There are new notions if you look. This isn't the first time Paul had to address this in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jump down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So if this is such a problem, why is this such a draw? Now, I'm going to speak just from my own life and experience as to why this is such a draw, and maybe you can relate to it. But why is this such a draw? Because I love God, and I want to worship Him with everything I have, but I've realized that spiritually, I can be an impulse shopper. And what I mean by that is, when you're an impulse shopper, you take whatever's ready, even if it's not the best even is not necessarily what you wanted. It's ready. And I get fooled into thinking the right here, the right now, the what I could see. I get in the fool that just because it's not working out the way I want it to work out, that God for some reason is not at work, but he is. But I get fooled and I buy into this. And the devil is a great salesman and he uses other people in our lives to come and try to sell us a lemon when we are being sold by Jesus eternity. And that's the draw of idolatry. See, nothing compares to the real thing. I am a proud youth pastor, 
and I've been doing this for a long, long time. And if God, um, if, if God were to never change my life and I died as a youth pastor, I would die a very, very happy individual because I love, love students. Now, being a youth pastor, I feel I would be remiss if I got up here and didn't share a goofy youth ministry analogy to paint this picture. So if you would indulge me, um, a very common known thing within our junior high and high school ministry is that I, my wife affectionately likes to say that I like old man music. I listen to a lot of older music. And one of my favorite bands, uh, one of the greatest bands in the world is the band Journey from the 80s. And, and particularly, it's the little slice of heaven that they wrote called Don't Stop Believing, which is quite frankly the standard that all other songs should be judged in. And, and, and if you disagree with me, I love you, but it's okay to be wrong. So here's what's interesting about that. I love that song. We live in a YouTube generation. If you take any song that you like and you type in the title of YouTube, what comes up is like thousands of people doing covers of it. And what's awesome is 90% of it is awful. There's, there's some great covers of Don't Stop Believing, and I have that, but it tends not to be what pops up on YouTube. And one example we've shown in our youth group is I found this, this Journey cover that was from Sweden, and it was this weird techno, house, dubstep, don't stop believing remix. If you don't understand any of those terms I just use, just ask a teenager when you walk out of here. But it was really weird and it wasn't good. They didn't know how to sing. It was this weird, weird music video. But what struck me was that this had fans. What struck me as I'm reading the comments is going that people seem to enjoy it. People are like, that's the best thing ever. And I'm sitting there going, Really? Because if you took that garbage and you compared it to the original, it would never, ever compare. And I mentioned that's a goofy youth group example that we've used, but when you take idols of our lives, when we take these things that we try to define as and we compare it to the true definition of a child of Jesus Christ, it blows all this out of the water. Now understand something, as I listed off some of those things that become idols, did you notice that some of those are good things? Did you know that some of those are even some of the best things that we can experience in life? I'm not saying that in certain context, these things aren't good, aren't great, aren't even some of the best, but the reality is they will never be the ultimate thing. And what it means to be the ultimate thing is it will never fade and everything else will, but the love of Jesus won't in this life and the next. So Paul is saying, do not go backwards because backwards is going back into slavery, but go forward because the blood of Jesus bought you and you are now free. So as a church, let's move forward. Do you see that Paul's command to set up boundaries with those that would influence us to idolatry is rooted in love? Do you see, like I mentioned earlier, that it's not this finger wagging in the face going, I can't believe you, what are you doing? But he's saying this, he's bringing a harsh truth, a real truth to the church, to the church today, but he's doing it because of love for the reasons I just said, that I love you too much to see you become a slave. I love you too much to go back and lose your real identity. I love you too much to see you fall apart by living under the dominion of the devil because Jesus bought your freedom and walks with you everywhere you go. And that's what it means to be the church. So let's pick ourselves up, let's live in community, and let's be the church, and let that be our definition. It's not on your note sheets, but if you would write on your note sheets, Colossians 3, 4. Another letter of Paul to a church in Colossians 3, 4. Please read that at some point when you leave here today. 
Paul just writes, set your heart, set your minds on things above in the verses that preceded. And in 3-4, he says, when Christ, the Messiah, who is your life, appears. I love just those phrasing. Who is your life? So what do we do about this? How do we apply this? Well, there on your note sheets, there's a section called cleansing the temple. Probably as I've been talking, we've been realizing some influences in our lives, some idols in our lives, and things go hand in hand. And we ask, well, what do we do about this? Well, we need to cleanse the temple. One of my favorite uh, accounts in the Old Testament is in 2 Chronicles 29. In 2 Chronicles 29, we are introduced to a 25-year-old king of Judah named Hezekiah. And what had happened is the nation had been, the nation up until that point had been tanked by being led into idolatry. It was a dark, dark time. And Hezekiah loved the Lord God. And he wanted to bring the nation out of that time of darkness. So the very first thing he did was to restore worship at the temple. And he did that by cleaning house. He went to the temple and he cleaned out all of the idols. And what they did is they restored the temple to its created purpose, and that is to worship the true God, the only God Almighty. And so for us in the church in 2012, we, if we are the temple of God, we need to clean house and we need to restore our worship to the one and only God. So in that, there are two things we need to examine. And the first one is this. We need to examine the people in our lives. You need to ask the question, where are your relationships leading you? Who in your life has your attention? Who in your life has the majority of your time? Who in your life, when they speak, you listen? Who in your life calls the shots, so to speak? Who in your life do you want to model yourself to be? And let me ask you just an honest examination question. Are they leading you backwards into the past? Or are they leading you forward into your reality in Christ? Now, there's two action steps I'd love for you to jot down in your note as we continue to unpack this. The first one is this. This is tying into what Pastor Mike talked about last week is we need to continue to expand the models in our life. We need to continue to expand the Christ influences in our life, the positive influences that are leading us to be more and more like Jesus. See, church is not about being consumers and coming once a week and being entertained. Church is about the temple of God getting together in one big community and together doing life, good and bad, ups and downs, smiles and tears, and being community together to be transformed, to be more and more like Jesus. That's what church is all about. And we need these models in our lives because as we get together in our community, it fires us up. It reminds us who we are and we go back and we drop a spiritual atom bomb in an unbelieving world. But to do that, we need to expand the influence of the Christ influences in our lives. So how do we do that? We go where they are and we start building relationships. We actually start meeting the people around us. Let me give you some examples of that. Pastor Dave Cox talked about some essentials classes. Get involved in an essential. Who's at the essentials? Christ followers that want to grow to be more like Christ. Get involved in the essentials. 
If you're like me, you're a creature of habit. You probably sit at the same place every week for service. I tend to. So get to know the people around you. If they're here every week, that means they want to learn and grow too. Let's start building these relationships. In the fall, you're going to have an opportunity to sign up for life groups. Life groups are the DNA of this church. This is where we shrink this big church down into a small group of believers where we have models and influences and people that are doing that can do life with us. But the ultimate goal is we want to be more like Jesus. If you haven't done it yet, get in a life group in the fall. Another great thing is serve. Meet other Christians by serving at the church. VBS is coming up. We're going to have 500 kids on this campus. We have an army. We're going to have an army of kids that can overthrow us. So we need all the adults we can possibly get. So come and serve and you're going to build relationships on and on and on. If you're brand new to the church, write that you're brand new on your card. Pastor Mike, our lead pastor, loves to invite people, about once a month, loves to invite you that are brand new to his house where he gets to give you dessert and it's good dessert. And he wants to meet you. He wants to build relationship and connection to build our base of influences that are Christ followers. Now here's the second part of that action point. There are certain relationships in your life that you probably need to pull back from, that you need to set boundaries on, and that you may need to discontinue altogether. So the first action point under that people, people spot was to build more Christ influence in our life. And the second one is to start putting up those boundaries with the people that are leading us back into idolatry. And to be honest, men and women, this one's painful. This one hurts. You know why? Because we realize that it's those relationships that we were trying to seek our worth, our identity in, and pulling back from that can hurt. Because the level likes to lie to us and say, well, if you lose that relationship, you're going to be all alone. But I love how Paul continued to talk about what it's like to be in the family of God. You are never, ever alone. See, we have the community that's the local church. We have the global church. But Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 28, after he gave the Great Commission, said, I, Jesus, will be with you to the very end of the age. Remember, I talked about the only thing that will not change is Jesus and understand, sometimes we try to justify saying those in those, in those harmful relationships and going, but I just want to be a light to them. I just want to bring Jesus to them, but they're influencing us more than we are them. And as, as somebody that loves you in grace and love, let me say something very, very true about that. It is very hard to be a light to others when we are not being transformed by the true light of Jesus. You may not be strong enough to be what they need right now. We may need to pull back, but the community of Christ is here with you to walk with you when it's hard. So the second fill in there is the second relationship we need to examine is God. Does he have your primary focus? Is Christ what you're worshiping? Does Christ get your time? Does Christ get your attention? Does Christ get your desires? Does Christ get your passion? Remember, I mentioned earlier in this teaching that it's not trying to fit him into my daily agenda. It's that he is the agenda. He is the priority. It's interesting to me, and I don't think it's wrong, but it's interesting that when we're teaching kids how to pray, we teach them to pray at one specific time of the day, but we know that we need to let them know that that's just to help you build a habit, but prayer needs to saturate our day. God needs to saturate our day. And so how do we worship God? Because we're worshiping. We're great worshipers again, so we need to put God and let God be just that in our lives. God. And we do that by worshiping him. And what's a great, great way to worship? If you've been around the church world for any length of time, you've heard the term spiritual disciplines. 
Now, spiritual disciplines can include a lot of different things. Spending time in the Word. Spiritual disciplines can involve music. Spiritual disciplines can involve journaling, can involve prayer, can involve silence, and we can go on and on with different things that spiritual disciplines can involve. And sometimes we have a distorted view of spiritual disciplines, that we see them as an obligation, as a check mark. Well, if I do this X amount of times, then I'm going to be a good Christian and I'm going to make it to heaven. Hey, gospel of grace, God paved the way for you to get to heaven, not because of what you did, but because of who he is. But these aren't an obligation. These spiritual disciplines are acts of worship. What we are doing in these spiritual disciplines, if I can sum it up, is we're standing before our Father, our Creator, our King, and we are saying, influence me. Because I've been trying to do this on my own and it ain't working. So influence me, Jesus. Now there's a lot of areas we can go in there. What I wanted to share just in in conclusion with the spiritual disciplines is there are two in particular that help me that maybe they can be a help to you to give you practical steps. And the first one, when it comes to spending time in the word, I just discovered this a week ago and I love it. On my iPhone, so if you have like a smartphone or a a tablet of any kind, there's a free Bible app called the YouVersion app of the Bible. It's a free download that was created by this church. Actually, it's not, by this multi-site church pastor by Craig Groeschel. And what I just discovered about it is that it talks to you. It actually reads the Bible to you. So this morning I'm sitting in my car and I plugged it, I plugged in my iPhone to my car system and it was reading chapter three of the gospel of John to me. And I'm sitting there going, this is awesome. And what I just discovered was a new way to experience a spiritual discipline with God. I can easily do that as I drive. I can play it in the house. I can play it whatever I'm doing. That's a great, great tip. I love technology. Thanks, Apple, to be able to do that. The other thing is the discipline of silence. This one kind of burns me. I didn't necessarily want to talk about this one because I don't like it. And the reason is I'm a youth pastor because I'm ADD. I'm addicted to noise. But when I get into silence with the Lord, like I'm, I have technology all the time, I have things, but when I turn my screens off, when I sit before the Lord, and to be frank, when I just shut up, the Lord moves, the Lord talks, the Lord teaches, and it's like that spiritual switch goes on and I go, oh, that's what you mean. That's what you're trying to do. Two simple ways we can start worshiping, especially with that version thing, the minute you hit your car and you drive out of here. As Christ followers, the spirit of the Lord dwells within us and Paul's command may involve some painful steps, but he, he wraps it with the reminder that God is your father loves you, defines you, will give you what you need. And within him, you have a bright, bright presence and a bright, bright eternal future. But to really acknowledge that, we need to make sure that we're toppling the idols in our lives. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to close out the time of teaching by going into a time of reflection. I'm going to invite Lauren to come back up, and she's going to sing a song over us. And so as she sings the song over you, I want to invite you to go ahead and stay in your seats. But here's what we're doing in this time. See, as Lauren sings this over us, what we need to do is we need to do some business with God. 
There's some of you that maybe you've identified some relationships that are having a harmful, harmful, uh, harmful, harmful influence on you. Maybe through those relationships, you've identified an idol, something that you've placed more important than God. And what we're going to do is we're going to reflect because the first step of getting any real business done is admitting the problem, is it not? And so we're going to do this. This is going to be a time of lament. The song that Lauren is going to share with us is an incredible song because it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. What I love about the song is that it just shows the reality of the struggle, the hardship, the temptation, but it always goes back to the core, but Jesus, I want you. So as we do the song, the lyrics are gonna be on the screen. Maybe you wanna reflect with what the words are saying. Maybe you just wanna close your eyes and do some business with your father. But the nice thing is this isn't also how we're gonna end the service. We're gonna do this first step so that we can be led to the celebration that Christ gives us. So pray with me. Father, bring to mind, speak to us. Let us not run from anything you're trying to get our attention on. Father, even if it's painful, remind us that you are bigger. Speak to us, cleanse our temple today. Identify those influences and idols that you, that we need to give, uh, you take back control from to give it back to you. We love you as your church. In your son's name, amen. Well, his freedom is here. His freedom is Jesus. And that's what we walk out celebrating about, that no matter what knocked us down, the freedom of God is what sets us, is what does just that, it sets us free. Brothers and sisters, it has been an immense privilege and honor to serve you in this way. Thank you for that opportunity. If there's anything tonight, if there's any, if for any reason this morning um, you would love to get some extra pair, love to be encouraged, love to talk to somebody, just to my left in the far back corner of, of this worship center is the prayer corner. There's some amazing men and women just passionately seeking God out there that would love to pray with you, would love to talk with you. Now, as we leave here today, as we leave, remember that we are the family of God. Remind yourselves, everything you do today and this week with your family, with your friends, and in your careers, the words in 1 John 31 that says, how great is it that we should be called children of God? because that is what we are. Let that define you as you go forward from here. Next week, we hope you can be with us. We're going to continue our series. Pastor Joel Enyar is going to be bringing an awesome word. So we hope to see you then. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.